0: Super stoked to have Distro Kids sponsoring the podcast and can't thank them enough for their support of this thing. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Produce Row Cafe here in Portland, Oregon. This has become one of my favorite local hangs because they have free music every Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sunday afternoons, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. They are located in inner southeast Portland. And not only do they offer free music on their their large patio setup, but they've also got a killer brunch menu from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. The French toast and the breakfast sandwich are lights out. And I can't really do much alcohol personally, but I love their Virgin Bloody Marys. And they've got some other mocktails for folks like me as well. And they're always rotating in new seasonal cocktails. So come through and check out what they've got on deck for fall and winter down there. The patio is now nice, covered, and heated, and will be throughout the fall and winter. So come through, and big thanks to Produce Row for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. (laughs) What is happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dan Cable Presents podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the program. Once again, if this is your first time listening, thanks for checking out the show. You can find fresh episodes coming at you every Friday. And if you want to help support this thing in a free way, you can do so by clicking subscribe on iTunes, clicking write a review, giving the podcast five stars if you feel like it is deserving of so. And that will help propel this thing into the tops of those iTunes charts, which will give it more visibility on the national and international levels helping strangers find the podcast and just a great way to contribute to the growth and sustainability of this thing appreciate the hell out of all the folks that have already taken the time to do so if you're not listening on apple just hit like follow subscribe wherever you are listening from the podcast is available on spotify now i've also been dropping monthly playlists there every first of the month So I will put the link for the Spotify profile in the episode notes, along with the Dan Cable Presents mugs and t-shirt links. And the link for my guest for episode 282, Geographer, is on the show. Killer songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist. This dude does it all, and uh, it was a pleasure to get to chat with him. He is currently based out of Los Angeles and it was really cool to get to know him. Mike and I seemed to hit it off pretty quickly and it was it was nice to hear about where his tunes derive from and I feel like I could have talked to him for another couple hours and uh, I hope I get the opportunity to hang with him in the future. We went deep on this thing, dove into nearly the whole discography more or less and uh, he just had a lot of great things to say and he's been making music for a long time and just got this really impressive catalog of music to his name including a, a brand new album that drops today November 12th it's called Down and Out in the Garden of Earthly Delights and we definitely get into the new record as well amongst the discussion and we'll share some tunes from that album but uh yeah thinking back on all the conversations that have happened throughout the year this is definitely one of my favorites and one that that stands out quite a bit just really really enjoyed this one we talked for almost two hours on this thing and and it really just flew by so if you're new to the show and you've tuned in because you're a geographer fan i i hope you appreciate this conversation as much as i did and, uh, let me know, hit me with, uh, some comments and the reviews or send an email to Cable presents at gmail.com. And, uh, if you dig what you hear, go back, check out some, some previous episodes, new interviews and conversations coming at you every Friday. Last week I had Kelly Finnegan from monophonics. That was a, a great chat that I recorded out at uh, Treefort music festival just a, uh, a couple months back, and Geographer just actually announced that he will be at the 2022 Treefort Music Festival, which is coming up here in March, and he also just announced a bunch of tour dates, so those links will definitely be in the episode notes so you can try to catch this dude live. I'm definitely trying to see him when he comes through Portland and uh, maybe get to link up over there at Tree Fort. If you are a Portland, Oregon local, come see me DJ on Wednesday night at Produce Row. They've got music over there every Wednesday night from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. and Sundays 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. covered, heated patio. So I'll be doing an Ernie Moose DJ set on November 17th. So that should be a cool hang, Produce Row links as well as all the other sponsor links will be in the episode notes as well and with that we are going to get into it big thanks to Mike Denny aka Geographer for doing the thing like I said just a a really impressive catalog of tunes and uh, just a a great chat this one was so uh, thanks to Claire for helping linking this thing up and check out the new Geographer record, Down and Out in the Garden of Earthly Delights. And we're gonna kick it off with one of my favorite tracks from that album. It's called Alibi, let's do the damn thing. geographer tunes recently i'm a a new fan to your music oh cool which i think that's fantastic it's always fun when you uh find a new artist and there's so much music to catch up on so i have been doing my crash course on the geographer tunes getting ready to uh to have this conversation (laughs) with you because i know you've been that's awesome you've been doing it a long time
1: but, uh, I assume that means you picked yourself up a copy of my Kite Seven Inch on eBay from two thousand
0: and eight. Yeah, that was that was my first <laughs> yeah. move. I was like, let's see right, what cool. the most Thank expensive you. thing on Discogs is from this dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what was your entry point into music, Mike?
1: Like in general, like uh, yeah, music like, itself.
0: Yeah. When did you uh, kind of catch the bug, and were you a, a you know? an avid listener of music from an, a really early age?
1: Well, I I think, I mean, you know, when you're a young kid, I mean, your tastes are so <laughs> interesting, right? It's like, I can remember the first artist I really loved was Michael Jackson. Um, You know, Bad, I think, had just came out. And I just remember just thinking that was so cool. I've also talked to a lot of artists where their first favorite artist was Prince. And it's interesting, right? It's like the two warring monolithic men of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. But I st- I mean, music for me really started with making it. So I started piano when I was 6 years old. Um you know, sort of mindlessly. It was just like, you will take piano lessons. And I'm like, yes, I will. <laughs> and I did like, you know, basically, I was just thinking the other day that this is the longest period of time I've ever gone without performing for someone in person in my entire life, like <laughs> since I was six years old. Because you do like a recital a couple of times a year. Um But yeah, the piano was... I I definitely like enjoyed playing it, but I didn't have a passion for it just because... You know, they teach children classical music and they hate it, you know? I'm like dancing to bad in the living room and then playing some Chopin and I'm just like, Where's the linkage here? But I you know <laughs> I so my real musical journey started when I started playing the saxophone. So that was like my oh, first wow. musical choice. Like my parents um, you know, they asked me like what do you wanna what do you wanna play? Uh, trumpet, like, what are you thinking? And I was just like, saxophone. Like For some reason, that just stood out to me. I mean, it's, I had never heard anybody play the saxophone before. I think it was because my sister had a friend who played the saxophone, and he was really good. He was, like, quite a bit older than me. Um, he was older than her, too. He was, like, a senior when she was a freshman in high school. Um, and he was just... I don't know. I, I don't know. I, like, saw something in him that I was like, yeah, I want, I want to be like that. So I took the saxophone and, um, yeah, the, the, for the next, like, few years, tortured my parents <laughs> with just, like, elephant sounds. <laughs> but that became kind of my identity as a person because I was really bad at sports and... uh You know, basically that's it. You know, that's that that's like the currency of youth is sports and like, you know, running around. (laughs) I wasn't great at that stuff. Um, so I just like I really threw myself into music and I became you know, that was my identity from others as well. Like they were like, This is the saxophone kid. He's like uh sort of a saxophone phenom, you know? And I you know, I didn't like apply myself that hard. I've always been somewhat of a lazy, you know, like a musician where I would never practice the saxophone, but I I still had lessons every week, you know. So it was like that was my practice was at my lesson much to my teacher's chagrin but he never let on god bless him but it's like <laughs> that that eventually became the thing that buoyed my self-confidence such that it was you know cuz it was mm-hmm. I was definitely like a nerdy dorky scrawny undesirable person but then I got to play all the saxophone solos you know so it's like playing I played this the alto solo in In the Mood um Glenn Miller song and that was you know I mean, and it also just felt so good. Like I experienced euphoria playing the saxophone where it was like, I mean, because those songs that they had us play were incredible, you know, and I, but I remember this one particular song in high school um, is a Keith Jarrett song and I don't know what it is so i don't remember it but i remember playing it and just ripping on that solo improvising a solo and feeling like i hit all the right notes and just like this euphoric feeling in my chest it was like after that i was hooked i was just sort of like i'm gonna this is what i'm gonna do yeah and obviously i left the saxophone aside but
0: yeah Yeah. but also cool that you you kind of became that cool saxophone dude that you you looked up to
1: (laughs) I did, and once I did, I realized that there's nothing particularly cool about being the cool saxophone dude.
0: <laughs> okay, but that aside, did that? Uh, once you kind of you know found your thing in the saxophone and the music was really speaking to you, do you feel like that kind of upped your self confidence of of who you were walking oh, around school and stuff?
1: Absolutely, I I had this indomitable like sense of self where. I would perform like we had these yearly concerts called One Night Stand, which is you know strange looking back that is high school called One Night Stand. <laughs> like they yeah. were referring to one night only concert, right? right, right? right. So it's like it was innocent, but <laughs> um, it's very strange. But so I would do those, and I was always featured because we had a small ensemble as well, and so I would always like play my solo, like my Miles Davis song or something, and then. You know, I was like, oh, tomorrow, all the girls are going to be like, I saw your solo. <laughs> it was really good. But uh, that never happened. <laughs> I, I, it did so, kind of happen from being in musicals. Because I was also, you know, singing was obviously an equally enormous part of my life. I was in a small singing ensemble in, college, or in high school as well. And then I was in the musicals, so I was like out there acting, quote unquote, like a kid waving their hands, reciting lines and singing. And somehow that did attract the attentions of, you know, human beings. So that was where I was sort of like, oh, okay, talent, talent is uh, fun. you know, like talent yeah. is something that is cool for people. Like I, I um, in fourth grade, I sang the solo, to aladdin a whole new world um there was Pressing. jasmine and then there was an aladdin and i'm like a little Hell boy yeah. and i get up there i'm just like
2: a whole new <laughs> world like i can't
1: imagine how it sounded but i i was like coming out of the bathroom after the performance and there were these two high school girls who were like damn boy you can sing and i was like oh uh, thank you and i was just like i can sing <laughs> you know it's just sort of like developing my sense of self like what what do I have to offer the world of humanity? <laughs> and I honestly, I think that really stuck with me because it was like that's what I gave that's what I gave to my com- my small community in whatever school I was in or my town. um and then eventually that's what I gave to my college and then I was just like, this is what I give to the world, you know
0: yeah, were you always walking around singing? kind of of person no I had (laughs) self-respect I mean I was
1: like (laughs) because I was (laughs) I was also very insecure so it's not like I was like flaunting my talent in any way the the only time I allowed myself to do that was when I was on stage you know which which kind of remains to this day where it's like you know in this in this day and age you you're encouraged to be a show-off You know, Mm. and I think that's something that's held me back social media wise, where I have this like deep, like molecular aversion to showing off, you know, because it's unseemly behavior for a gentleman. But I, I, whenever I'm on stage, it's just like, now you can be who you are, you know, because like they came to see you and it really, you know, helped me become a a person, like a better person Mm. was like stretching out my wings on stage and then eventually getting to the point where even like just recently I'm starting to see, okay, I can show this light. And if, you know, if it it hurts somebody's eyes, no big deal. If they're like, turn that off. It's like, no big deal. It's mine. And and it's what I have. So yes, incredibly long journey, you know, (laughs) of getting there.
0: I'm sure the people that have followed you for a, a long time, maybe appreciate that you're not the the type of person that is is trying to show off through social media and that you do kind of save that for the stage in some way. And, you know, yeah,
1: I mean, I hope so. It's like I, cause I grew up loving albums. I grew up loving artists, you know? And so I, I didn't grow up loving famous people. I didn't really idolize anybody who was alive, you know, (laughs) or not alive, but like, like vital, you know, it's like, I didn't idolize anyone who was currently making their best work. So I had no poster of anybody on the wall. I remember I tried to, I was like, okay, what do people do? They have a, okay, boys have a football poster. Okay. What football team do I like? Hmm, Troy Aikman. He he seems nice. (laughs) You know, it was like that kind of stuff. And I'm just like pretending to be like a, my conception of a, of a regular child, but Meanwhile, I'm listening to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Nick Drake, and James Taylor, and Cat Stevens. And these are all very, like, humble humble performers, at least in the way they present, you know? So I guess that kind of happened maybe unconsciously, where it was just, like, th- those were my guiding light of just, like, music first, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, it's been interesting to come around to 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 peace, to making peace with that, of as far as, like, it's okay to promote yourself because, you know, these internet things that we have, like TikTok and Instagram, it's like these are the – this is like going on tour. You know, like when mm-hmm. I first started, going on tour was how you would promote yourself, right? And, uh, you know, also in the 90s, it was like get in a van, eat mac and cheese, go on <laughs> tour, you know. and And I'm okay with that because tour is amazing. And it's almost – better than the making of the the records you know because it's like it truly gives back to humanity and and is a deep experience you know where you're in a room with people it feels real you're connecting in in a way that's greater than you usually do but i've I've recently come around to seeing social media the same way it's like listen this is just what you have to do because whether you realize it or not when you were on tour you were promoting your record you know right. it's like that was right. promotion it was just really fun you know and like just because social media isn't exactly fun all the time it's tour so you got to go on tour you know yeah
0: and then and then you have a whole different kind of tour when you got to na- navigate the the covid situation and figure out how to <sighs> how do you tour yourself during that and i i watched a lot of your uh your acoustic videos that you you put out yeah. during the time and and dug your your takes on a lot of those tunes that uh nice. i love Thank that Sylvanesso song a lot yeah so it was really cool to hear your take on it just you know you and an acoustic for this big produced pop song was was fun right to hear.
1: exactly yeah and it was really fun to figure out too like always getting to the dna of a song you know and like because i never want to just play chords Basically, you know, and I'm not like an incredibly gifted guitarist, so it's not like I can just make an arrangement, but it was really fun to dive because that's one of my favorite recent songs. Um, and it's really fun to dive into that synth part, which is just basically like I forget if it's fourths or fifths, it's probably fourths, but it's like bounce and out down. Yeah, and to do that on a guitar was really challenging for me, but ultimately, really neat.
2: I had it all planned out before you met me Was gonna leave early so swiftly Maybe in a fire or crash off a ravine. People would weep out tragic so early I was gonna die on Now I gotta wait
0: this day is also helpful and kind of just informing your your future compositions and and helping you realize how you can connect the dots in some ways
1: absolutely it's always so inspiring to because it's kind of like studying you know you're like uh you can like a song and you can have this this faint impression of what makes it cool and and i'd I'm not saying that's less important because, you know, if you get a little too intellectual, you start writing Weezer songs. But it's like if if you dig into that, just like it's a text, you know, like if you're a writer, the best thing to do is to examine a novel that you love and what makes it wonderful, you know. And so I definitely am wary. I try not to tread too far. But digging into songs and demystifying them, a little bit, it really opens up the doors in your own mind. Like, when you realize that everything in its right place is actually, like, really easy to play, Mm. you know? Uh. It it really demystifies. And and in a way, I'm reticent to do that because Radiohead kind of remains, like, the last bastion of music that really moves me and that I'm just amazed by, you know? But doesn't make me want to quit or give up. Right, because it's like, you know, if I listen to too much jazz, sometimes I feel like I want to give up because I'm just like, well, what am I, (laughs) what am I doing? Yeah. Um, Or classical music, like if I listen to Debussy too much and think, okay, well, I'm going to try to do this, like I, I can't, you know, I truly can't. But, you know, I can do what Radiohead does on certain songs in certain parts. And that feels good to realize, you know, where you're just Mm. like, wait, these guys aren't superheroes. They're not magicians. They're just incredibly gifted artists, you know? So it's like... Yeah. Why, why not try? <laughs> yeah.
0: And then you also have to like not get caught up in trying to sabotage every beautiful moment in a song chasing down that that Radiohead-esque thing. <laughs> Seriously.
1: Oh, man. The, the first five years of my songwriting in earnest was like trying to exercise my desire to be tom york (laughs) you know it was like and thankfully like interpol and arcade fire came around and so then i wanted to be those people but then i had to get rid of that as well and then eventually i became myself but like yeah if you're emulating and i think probably the most important thing i took from my scholastic education was if you imitate one person you you sort of you suck. You know, there's no point to you. But if you but if you imitate a little bit of many people, then you're doing something all your own.
0: Yeah, it's like part of the process too of like the early stuff, you are this imitation of this thing and and the rest of yeah. it is kind of stripping it away in some way.
1: Yes. Well, it's really hard to know who you are, you know, in general. Everyone's always like be yourself. That gets hammered into you and you're just like Who am I though? (laughs) You know, you're just like, who are you? Who am I? Yeah. What does it mean to be something? (laughs) You know, and it's just like, it's such a meaningless thing to say to a child. And I think more, you know, more to the point would be like, don't worry so much. You know, Mm. just like, don't think so much. Just sort of like, try to enter a flow state, Jimmy. You know, and it's like, (laughs) what? And It just feels like you before you are something, how can you present that to the world artistically and I really like I lacked a lot of conviction and personality you know in my in even into my young adulthood you know it was I was just a sponge, I was still soaking stuff up, and I didn't really have anything to say until I left college and stopped learning, you know,
0: yeah. I think that that was like also one of the the fun things about exploring the the catalog as large as yours at this point is like, you know, you get to kind of see of like where it starts and what has become kind of like a constant in the songwriting Mm. or the production and then like maybe things that have been left behind but come back in other records. So that was was a trick. That's
1: very interesting. Yeah. Did you listen all the way to the very first Innocent Ghosts? I did. Nice. Yeah, that's just like a band playing their instruments into a computer. You know, it's just like there's not a lot of thought going into the arrangements. And then yeah, and then you can see that I was just like, "Wait. I got to put more thought into this."
0: <laughs> what happens, you know, after high school is that you go to Berkeley School of Music
1: from there? No, my my first couple bandmates went to Berkeley. Okay. Um But I went to Middlebury in Vermont to study English, creative writing and Italian. So I had this like very traditional education that didn't involve music at all after I left high school, which is really interesting because I like there was a time period where I quit music, like I quit playing music and I quit listening to music because I I wanted so badly to be a novelist that I was just like obsessed with that idea of just like being a novelist you know like we're talking corduroy blazers with the patch on the elbow sweater vests I, I really went for it and i i would listen to books on tape when when i would when i would normally listen to music so i'm like driving to and from college breaks like listening to moby dick you know or like one flew over the cuckoo's nest and it was great, and I actually listen to mostly listen to books on tape now, um just because i I do like to learn, so I listen to a lot of like history. I generally listen to the most sordid, wretched history of mankind that somehow, you know is interesting to me. <laughs> plumbing the depths of the human capacity for violence <laughs> and hatred. but so i I forget what actually clued it back in. But, I mean, I was also dating a girl at the time who was equally into being a writer. And we sort of, like, nested a little bit too hard. Like, where I didn't have a life outside Mm -hmm. of the book that I was writing and the books I was reading and, you know, the same stuff with her. So I think when we broke up, and I went back to campus because I was even living off of campus. So I, like, was not involved in in society, really. And I realized, like, that is not what I like. You know, it's, like, it's comfortable for me, but it's not what keeps me excited about being alive. Like, and I realized that writing was that. You know, like, writing a, a, a book, you're just by yourself the entire time. And there's no celebration. But music, you write... You record, which is fun, and then you celebrate for the rest of your life. You know, it's just like these songs. Um, And I think just in wanting to put myself back into the world, I just started playing like acoustic shows at the coffee shop or something on campus. Um, And oh, but also the, the radio station really awakened me, like gave me all of my influences most to this day, even, you know, just like going into that, that beautiful room lined with CDs and having my friend who has a show, just tell me to bring your computer and you can just like rip CDs and just like, Oh my God, I was just awakened to a world of music all the way back from classical to Brian Eno to like the books, which was happening then. And, and, you know, animal collective, I didn't know anything about any of these bands because I just grew up in this suburb in New Jersey, and then I went to a really small school in rural Vermont. You know, yeah. So that was huge for me. And then, and then around like Modest Mouse, when I when I got to them and I heard the Lonesome Crowded West, I was just like, whoa. You know that what's that song? Um, trailer cowboy something trailer parks the cowboys or something like that i don't know but it's like eating something with plastic forks and that like exploded inside me and i was like i want to start like a rock band so then i i mean i only had an acoustic guitar but i got a couple friends together and we actually had a rehearsal space on campus, which is really cool. And they had like lockers where you could keep your stuff. And there was like a sign-up sheet, just one room for the whole school. <laughs> but I borrowed my friend's electric guitar, just ran it right into the board, no amp. Cause I had no clue what I was doing. I was just like enjoying loudness. And this was my senior year. So we started playing shows like with maybe five months left of college. And that just really took off because it was such a small school. There was only one other rock band that wasn't, like, a jam band because it was a very, like, hippie environment. Um, and so we kind of, like, really quickly made a name for ourselves. It was called Stand Up Robot. And uh, we, you know, just played a handful of shows, and it just, like, electrified me. And, and yeah, after that, I I don't think I ever went back fully to acoustic until I had to when i moved to san francisco and i was like all right well i don't have anything here but the one thing i'm allowed to do is play my acoustic guitar in an, in an open mic and so i started doing that
0: yeah what was that experience like for you were you pretty comfortable sharing your tunes in that way
1: oh goodness no i was terrified always to perform like i was it was sort of like an exercise in emotional torture for me because i I was so scared to do it but i knew but i wanted to do it so badly and and when i look at my life it's kind of much the same way like i was like a very very locked up person very very frightened unsure of myself insecure you know um and obviously i still have a lot of those traits now but I've, i've been through a lot since then um and one of the things i did was I just sort of like I also had this courageous spirit when I was young because I it had been just drilled into me that I would lead like just a special life, whatever that means. Not like as a special person, but that my life would be rich and full of experiences and meaningful, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, conversations and adventures. So I took that spirit to just like everyday life where I was like, people would be like, hey, you want to go out dancing? And I would say, no, that is terrifying and then i would say yes let's go and then i would have this like trial by fire where my you know my heart is like pounding i'm in this club where people are supposed to have fun and let loose and i'm actually like working on myself as a human being and after a while i was like okay i'm kind of comfortable dancing now it was just classic desensitization um and that worked as well with music like when i first started doing musicals in high school I straight up would black out like I wouldn't remember the singing part of it like I would remember walking out on stage feeling extremely uncomfortable and then I'd be like okay I'm singing somehow and I'm can move but it would basically like happen on autopilot and it wasn't until I guess wow like maybe a year into touring with Geographer that I eventually became very comfortable on stage to the point where I'm more comfortable on stage than I am at a party, you know? So I'm just like, this doesn't frighten me. And the reason it doesn't frighten me is because I know that I can do it. Because that's all Mm. it's about. It's like, you're scared about dancing in a club because you're worried people are going to laugh at you, you know, because you don't do it well. But I'm like, I've practiced this enough. I've gotten enough positive feedback. I do this well, you know? So it's like, I really need it to be proven to me that I like don't worry you'll be fine that's like kind of my my journey with performing
0: was your move to San Francisco kind of an opportunity to reinvent yourself in some way or you know start the next chapter in your life moving away from you know the east coast
1: I mean more than reinvent just like invent because I'd never I hadn't been anything yet you know (laughs) it's like I was still just a bunch of potential and that's like the weird thing about college is your you're just potential you realize that you are being taught for the first 20 21 years of your life and then one day happens called graduation and then you're supposed to utilize all those skills and information and live your incredible life you know <laughs> and it everyone that like everyone was freaking out the last few weeks of school just like going berserk it was like a a, a collective insane you know just like schizophrenic break um so i you know i moved to boston to to be with my best friend and my sister um and i interned at the atlantic monthly i was like going full like i'll be you know a normal like intellectual part of society and it was really fun you know um but still music called to me i played in i actually played saxophone in a band um but eventually like, you know, I didn't really love the music. It wasn't my music, so I I started writing songs for myself again. Um, and I actually also had this crazy formative experience where I lost my voice in that band in college so, because I was screaming so much, <laughs> just so excited. <laughs> so I had to not sing for a period of 3 months. So then coming back from that was very formative in in engineering my vocal style where I finally was forced to stop emulating my favorite vocalists, whether they were Kurt Cobain, um, Elliot Smith, you know, like equally painful ways for someone with like a round, soft, gentle voice to sing, you know, and also false, you know, like it just, that's not me, you know, I may be that angry or I may be that sad, but I'm not like a, yeah, or a (laughs) kind of guy. Um, and that's their thing. And that's why they're so amazing that you'd want to emulate them is because they're doing something wholly original. Um, so then I had to just be like, OK, you have to sing properly You have to breathe through your diaphragm. You have to send out a nice, clean tone without pushing and you can't send too much air through your courts. And I'm like, OK. And it's interesting. I mean, you can kind of hear it on the records a little bit. You know, because where I'm, like, doing overcompensating, where I'm, like, very quiet, you know, in, <laughs> like, yeah. my early stuff. And then eventually I get comfortable. I get a little less scared of hurting my voice. Um, and that really formed my my vocal style in those years during Boston. Then my sister suddenly passed away. And so that was, like, a huge family tragedy. Moved down to New Jersey voice thing happened again because it's like related to just like stress you know of just like i don't know it's interesting it's like my voice seems to carry my my heart in it you know so it's like when when life is really horrifying my my voice takes the hit because it's like the pure gentle little angel that lurks inside me (laughs) and yeah, so building myself back up from there, I was just really determined to make something of myself. So then I I had all these songs that I had written, you know, in my time of just like destitution, basically, where I was just like working a job and going to a bar every night with my one friend who was still at home from high school. And it was really, just really dark. And I was just like, am I ever going to be able to pick up from this again? Is my life like over? But then just remembering how much my sister believed in me, you know, and like she would always tell people like, my, my brother's going to be a rock star one day. And they'd look at me and be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, but I was just that, you know, it gave me the strength to kind of be like, no, I'm not going to stay in this basement. I'm not going to keep going to this bar. I'm going to move to Brooklyn or or San Francisco because that's where I had friends. But then all my friends left Brooklyn. So I was like, that's a little scary to just move to New York City when you don't have a job, you don't have a band, you don't have anything except a bunch of songs, like maybe two of which are decent. Yeah. Um, but my friends from college basically saved my life and were like, because they lived in uh philadelphia and i grew up really close to there so that's where my mom's house was uh in new jersey though um and they were like we're we're going back to san francisco after this little visit home and you're coming with us and they just like stuffed me in my car with a bunch of my stuff um and then i started my life and and shortly you know i guess like two years of just like because they were really inspired people as well one one wanted to be a comedian and then the other was a great musician. He had been in stand-up robot in college with me. So we were working on songs. Like I was kind of finding how to channel electronic music in with my new vocal technique. Because everyone around me was telling me like, Mike, you got to sing more like dirty, like more, you know, like scream a little bit. Like let's have something cool. And I'm like, I can't, you know. And it was like really frustrating to get people on board with it. Um it was like a constant struggle where they'd be like, this is a really epic part of the song. It would be great if you could scream. And I'm just like, no, you know, I can't. And my heart's like pounding because I'm just like so nervous about it. You know, like uh, <laughs> band dynamics before you know how to do them are really intense, um, which is why they rarely last very long. But basically, you know, doing those open mics, particularly at the Hotel Utah, that, which is this really crazy, you know, <laughs> just like... Oh God, I don't even know how to, do it. it's, it's kind of like a carnival of, of, uh, freaks in a good way. You know, like that's why I liked San Francisco was because it was just filled with weirdos and I considered myself to be quite strange. And so it was great to be in this place where it was just like, you're all welcome here. And, and Hotel Utah really typified that. And you would get to play five minutes And there was a host and he got to know you. And then, you know, know, you'd get there really early, put your name in and then draw it out of a hat. So sometimes you'd stay till one in the morning just to get the chance to play your song. You'd listen to like a, you know, a homeless man recite a poem and another like, uh, you know, working dad with a ponytail shred on like the national anthem on a violin (laughs) that was plugged into a guitar pedal it was awesome and I like not only was it like very very fun and weird to go to but that's where I made all my friends and that's where I met uh the girl who would eventually introduce me to my band members so that's where I met Casey Johansing and she's the girl that you hear on the Innocent Ghosts um just one of I think the greatest female voices that's ever existed and she's still making music now um But she went to Berkeley with Nate and Brian, the original band members of Geographer. Sort of like a slow build into you know first we were a different band we were called parasol and it was like a very different vibe um you know it was very, it was very like acoustic chamber music type thing and it wasn't until casey left that we started experimenting with electronics because it was like okay we don't have a keyboard player anymore how are we going to fill this hole and the way we decided to fill it was with doodads and like gadgets and yeah, then that's man. where like my passion for pedals and electronics came about because i had always been around since because my dad was like a real gearhead of things like he was a total hobbyist but he you know in like 1983 he bought a midi keyboard which is like when it came out so he's like yeah (laughs) ahead of the game i actually have it right here it's like it is the sound of verona which is one of my most beloved songs is the synth that i grew up with like messing around on as a baby, so that's very powerful to me too. You know, because also because Geographer did it sort of rose out of the ashes of of my my despair at losing my sister and then my dad like a year and a half later. So then incorporating that's them because I didn't feel comfortable incorporating them into my life because I was very. I mean, I guess I'm not entirely sure why, but it didn't feel like people wanted to know about that stuff. You know, I felt like a pariah in a way. It's like damaged mm. goods. Like you have, oh, you have despair in your heart, you know? So I I kind of, the only way I would interface with that grief was through my music. And I think using a lot of the gadgets that my dad got as a kid, was was very important to me and still is, you know, it's like a way to stay connected through these synths that turned out to be two of which turned out to be like straight up collector's items. You know?
2: Yeah
0: kind of make you want to be a gearhead knowing that your dad was super into that
1: yeah it was always something that i thought was cool you know because he was such a geek he was a professor of biopsychology and like he kind of looked like jerry garcia and he drove around a teal um volkswagen van (laughs) you know so he was like Really into stuff. He was kind of norm core before obviously it was a thing. Like he was like, I am very into Volkswagen vans. I am very into Apple computers, and I am very into circuitry. (laughs) You know, so he's like
0: he's a really fucking hip dude ahead of his time.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Like if he was if yeah, if he was a kid now, he would be, oh man, he'd be wearing those uh (laughs) George Costanza jackets. (laughs) He's So, I think I really, because I also thought he was super cool. Like, as you know, many people do think of their dad. And he was, he was like my best friend for a lot of the time that I was growing up before I actually became what I would call genuinely somewhat cool, which to me means you like to get fucked up and you like, (laughs) you know, and like. And you're you're mad. <laughs> you experiment
0: with psychedelics, but you're still mad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. The best kind
1: of person. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so I I carried that love into the indie ethos, which I think embraced that fully in like the the 2010s. Kind of, you know, where it was like the worse you looked, the better. The like less stylish you were, the better. The more cacophonous your setup was the better like the more mad scientist you appeared to be on stage like charisma was totally not prized more it was like oh he's leaning over a a bunch of machines interesting you know and then obviously that changed you know it's like i feel like dan deacon may have been a bit of a catalyst for that change because he combined Mm. both charisma and total nerdy gadgetry um, but yeah, it's interesting how the expectations of the audience will guide the choices that you even make in recording when there is no audience, you know, because you're like, I always kind of think when I'm making a song, I always kind of think about playing it live. When Even when I'm writing it, I, I'll often like picture myself in an en- enormous amphitheater, you know, ideal situation and <laughs> just like, what's it like to play this? You know, is it interesting? Is it fascinating? And the answers to those questions have changed a lot over the time that I've been making music, you know, as music has changed a lot and its own influences have changed. Um, Yeah. So I think I just care. I try to carry that stuff forward with me through that changing landscape. So I don't, because it's really, it is genuinely hard to not pander to the desires or the supposed desires of your, imaginary audience you know and it's like like you were talking about i was really interested in that because you were saying it's interesting to hear the through line what are the through lines in my compositions and then what are the things that change and i kind of have no idea you know because it's like you're always trying to chase this abstract idea of okay what is authentically geographer like what is geographer and you also, at the same time, you're trying to not think that because you're trying mm. to say everything that is geographer, I want to do something different this time, either to prove that I can to myself or to keep myself stimulated or to, to broach, you know, like new frontier. Um, and that's not the way every artist has to go, you know, but but the ones that stick around, they, they generally tend to make drastically different sonic compositions then you know it's like Paul Simon is a perfect example it's like Scarborough Fair to Graceland is quite a change and they're each equally gorgeous and I'm sure there are people who are like stop going to Africa and and making that weird rock music you know they're like give me more harmonies but I don't know. Those people are certainly the outliers, but they're there and you got to, it's really hard to not listen to all those different voices in your head or, or, or literally telling you to just be what you were like, make another kites, you know? And, yeah. you know, Lou Reed even said, he was like, I tried desperately to make another walk on the wild side. I just couldn't, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, doesn't work that way, man. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm trying, you know, <laughs> but I think that ultimately that's a terrible mistake. Um, cause walk on the wild side was so transcendent because it was new. So, Mm. you know, even though your record label, I guess, you know, at, at the time they were doing that a lot more labels were like, we need another hit, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they're telling you to do that. That's not really what they're asking you. They're really asking you to actually do the near impossible, which is do something equally impactful, but totally different (laughs) than anything anyone's ever heard. You know, good luck
0: yeah man i'm just impressed with uh your ear for production and and the songwriting throughout the the whole catalog and i think you know certain records might dive into specific vibes a little bit more but yeah to me there's always been like the constants of like or at least from diving into animal shapes you get the the electro pop vibes, but there's also still like a lot of guitar driven stuff. And yep. you mentioned maybe not being able to express yourself with the anger through some loud vocal, but you know, getting into a, a record like myth, there's a a song like shell beach. It's one of my favorite mm-hmm. tracks on the record. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, you know, that's a song that gets real heavy with the guitars. And yes, it's, exactly. It's, you know, it's cool to see that there's kind of even that presence in the new record too you know those big guitar driven moments are there as much as the the synthy moments that feel like a guitar was never even in the room
1: right exactly yeah that's true and thank you so much i i just like i i think also not having the voice as an option for conveying like anger or or like uh desperation it made me really concentrate on the arrangements you know, as those would buoy up like the placid, somewhat placid voice. And it, it made me have to get a little more creative and I think really fall in love with synths. And in particular synth bass, because there's nothing oh. like angrier than like a, just like a, you know, just like a perfectly dialed in synth bass with a cutoff all the way up. It's an amazing sound.
0: Just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by North 45 pub located in the alphabet district of Northwest Portland. They've got a killer selection of Belgian beers and an extensive liquor wall with over 200 bottles. Muscles and Fritz are on the menu. Their cheeseburger is lights out and they've always got some killer weekly specials as well. Aside from the menu items and beverages, they've got this awesome covered patio that is heated throughout the fall and winter with a bunch of big screens to watch all your favorite sports. And the best part is they have DJs playing tunes there every Tuesday night from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. and Sundays, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So come through North 45 Pub for some tunes and some food. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah. Did you also just find that like the deeper you went down the synth rabbit hole that you were just finding pretty much just more and more instruments or ways to to filter your ideas that made it feel like there was just this never ending amount of possibilities for songwriting? Like you weren't going to run well, out of ideas? No, yeah.
1: No. If you're running out of ideas, you're just that's you know, there's no reason for that. <laughs> you know, it's like all the <laughs> instruments that exist. And I do get a lot of inspiration from specific instruments. So, and specific synthesizers, even though, you know, you could look at them and be like, they all do essentially the same thing. I think the problem with going deeper and deeper into synthesizers, as I did, was you get a little obsessed, you know, with different pieces of gear and you just want them all. But they're all like pretty expensive, you know, and you might only use them once. So for an indie artist, it's kind of not exactly an option, which which does make you get, you know, you have to then dive into combinations. So it's like, okay, layering became a really big thing for me. You know, like I think a major label band, when they go to record, there is a day where a synth guy comes to the studio and he brings like sometimes a a semi truck full of all the greatest vintage synths and modern synths ever created he'll even play them for you if you want him to and he's like a virtuoso keyboard player (laughs) so you could have like all the legendary synths on your album and you don't have to buy them you know but for me i record most of my stuff here you know in in my little studio here so i've basically and, and i will say that software synthesizers have definitely opened up a lot for me as well a lot of possibilities because I was obsessed with analog to a point where I was sort of like a crusader, where I was just like, no, outboard gear only, computer evil, analog good. But letting go of that was really liberating because then I could have, you know, that I could have an ARP odyssey (laughs) for just $150 or something, you know, (laughs) instead of (laughs) 15,000. And then that, you know, and I'm always incorporating analog into and and not just analog but digital which i also really prize like outboard digital stuff like the dx series um with the software synthesizers or i'll run the software synthesizers through a guitar pedal or something and that's where where i really started to see that the options were endless in a good way where it was like cuz if it can feel limiting in a way that the options are endless Because you're like, I have to have everything to do everything. Right. But then you realize that, you know, if a piece of gear is available to the public, it's not unique to you. It's Mm. in the way that you use it. So then I think I read somewhere that Brian Eno was just all about layering. And so then I started doing that as well, rather than trying to find the perfect sound on a synth, because I'm also not. i'm not very scientific about it it's all very tactile with me and i sort of i learn enough about each piece of gear that i can use it but not so much that i become like a practitioner of it you know i'm not like an expert um which i think is i like stumbling around in the dark i always have you know it's like i've always hated doing useful research i like doing a lot of pointless research um just to stimulate myself (laughs) you know and it's like i'm only a few youtube videos away from knowing everything about the prophet five but i'm just i've stopped myself from getting there you know i don't want to be an expert (laughs) but so i would get a sound to like maybe 70 percent and i wouldn't be happy with it but rather than learn how to use that synth i'd then leave that sound in in the piece and then go to a different synth and layer on top of it and just be like whoa this is a sound that doesn't exist. This is a synthesizer you cannot buy. You know, so that to me was where I found, you know, and then when you get into adding, you know, putting your guitar pedals on synths, and I think there was between animal shapes and myth was when I discovered pedals. You know, my manager at the time had been a a guitarist in like a shoegaze type band. So he had all these pedals that he wasn't using anymore and he gave them all to me. And I just set them all up on a table and then plugged them into a synth and I think the first song I made was Life of Crime, where I was just running a phaser. In, I mean, I don't know how specific we want to get, but like a bunch of crazy pedals that you would never chain in the particular order that I did. Mm-hmm. Because not only have, if you have two pedals, you don't just have two different sounds. You have four different sounds because of layering them in, In uh. like, which do you put first? And it's it just becomes really exciting. Also a little scary because you can't control it. But that's also very exciting because you're like, you feel like you're surfing, you know, rather than bicycling. Ah. Mm. You are riding on some power that is larger than you and bigger than your brain, and you know it's a hard way to write. And I don't really write that way anymore, just because it is so like emotionally taxing to try to wrestle that beast into a song structure. Because it's the same deal with sampling which I dabbled in a little bit on Myth, but very few of those songs made it on, except for um, Shell Beach, uh, where I would make this awesome loop out of a sample, but then it's like, I've never wanted to be a complacent songwriter, so I'm like, okay, this is just the verse. This can't be the chorus. Mm. But then it's like, if I want to change chords, I'm sort of like, shit out of luck, because I'm like, (laughs) there's no more chords in this thing I've sampled. What do I do?
0: (laughs) So are there are there times when you're writing a batch of tunes that you maybe even like to set up creative parameters for yourself since there are so many options gear wise where you're like, I'm just going to use this specific synthesizer. or I'm just going to use eight tracks to mess with this. Yeah. That's
1: really interesting and insightful because limiting yourself is essential, I think, you know, and, and I, I worked with a producer Taylor Locke on this recent album we wrote "Alibi" together, just kind of from scratch. weren't thinking it was for me. We were just like, "I like you, and I like the way you play music. Let's write a song. Who cares?" Um, and then we ended up writing "Alibi," which you know, is, we both were in love with. But when it came time to when it was like, "Okay, this is your song. So now, how are we going to arrange this?" I showed up at his studio, and he set me up with a limited palette because he was he was kind of like he had read something recently of a. Producer that he really respected. That that was the secret. It's like when you have an artist who plays a lot of instruments, you gotta limit them. So he gave me like a a string emulator, a mini Moog, which is like a fat bass, um, and then some weird bass synth with just like one octave, something I'd never even heard of before. And then we just built built the song with that, and it gives it like a really unique sort of auditory landscape that mm. I certainly never would have done on my own. And that's what I value so much about producers is shaking me up because I, I have gotten to the point where it's like, there are certain moves that I find myself going back to with each of the pieces of gear that I've had for a long time. And that's very dangerous, you know? Um, it's like, just cause you can do something doesn't mean you should, <laughs> but yeah. Also, if i'm obsessed with with an instrument or i'm like all right i'm gonna learn how to use my obx because i've had it for years and i just i don't know how to use it enough so the way i'm gonna do that is every time i write a song i'm gonna go to that one first you know and it's like sometimes you're forcing it and it's just the wrong instrument for the job but a lot of times you'll start making sounds that you wouldn't normally use and then you find okay this is the landscape of this one and this is different than this one yeah so yeah
0: I would assume that's like an easy way to eliminate whether it needs to be played on that instrument as well. Just like, yes, oh, this exactly. isn't working. Let's yeah. move to, Try the, it on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alone Time record. That yes. one, it seems like you really leaned into the R&B pop feel yes, with that record. Yes, I really did. I was wondering what what inspired that for you or was that just like not even a conscious thing that happened?
1: I mean, this is going to sound very strange, but I was, for that record, I was mostly inspired by the collaborations of Justin Bieber and Skrillex. The Biebs. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> not someone I ever thought I'd take musical, like, influence from, but those songs that he put out when in his comeback, like, uh, Sorry... Um, Oh, was the one that was like had a dee, had like a flute sound, like a really cheesy flute sound. Um, basically that record. Um, oh, and the uh, uh, Diplo and Skrillex thing that they did with him of where are you now that I need you? Boom, 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 boom. Like that just kind of electrified me in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. And it was really weird for me because I'd always been sort of like staunchly anti, um, like, uh, basically widely accepted pop, you know, because I was just like, this is vapid. This is bad for humanity. Why are we doing this? Why are we filling our young children with these horrible, like, desires and myths, which is like part of what I wrote myth about. But it just ended up being where the most interesting sounds were coming from. You know, it's like, obviously, I wasn't very influenced lyrically by those songs but the and it's crazy that a guy like Skrillex who who made some of the most caustic and bizarre music ever, right? <laughs> then starts making some of the most innovative and fascinating pop music. Cuz I have always wanted to be like a pop musician, not in not in the sense of of what it entails, but just in the first part of the word pop, you lure, you know, like I want to be popular. I want to be in everybody's home. That's what I desire.
0: I I mean, the Michael Jackson spoke to you from an (laughs) early age. Like that's something that's, you know, just makes people want to
1: move and, you know, it's part of the the zeitgeist. I I think some people, you know, um, like Fugazi, they genuinely don't want to be popular, you know, but, but all those those mainstays like paul simon Cat stevens like these were hugely popular artists you know but it was good music and that's always been sort of like my crusade is like i dare say that the radio can one day be filled with songs that also fill your soul and not just someone's pocket (laughs) you know it's just like because it used to happen everybody was getting rich and and also your soul was getting rich and why can't that happen again um (laughs) so that ep was me going for it i was like i i refuse to be held back by like an indie ethos i had also like was that the first oh yeah that was my first statement after like my i lost my first two band members they're alive (laughs) i know (laughs) but they 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 quit music essentially you know, it's a hard life. It's it really, it's very, very rough on the body, like going on the road. And we were all just so healthy and like conscientious, but it just, it messed them up, you know. And they also wanted normal lives. So it's like, you know, they had partners that they really missed. And, um, you know, for, for different specific reasons, they basically just gave up, they just gave up their dream, which is really intense. But, I mean, what can you say? You can't be like, no. <laughs> I need you <laughs> for my dream, <laughs> but so I, you know, I, I, I pulled up that indomitable spirit again, and I was like, I'm just gonna keep going, and uh, we're gonna see what happens now. Like, what happens now that I know I'm not writing parts for these specific guys who I've like gotten to know really well musically. I know everything they're capable of. I know what they can bring to the table. I know where they, you know, where I can ask them to surprise me. Um, so it was really me alone because I made uh Ghost Modern they were still in the band but then right when we were done basically they left the band you know staggered but so I toured that record with a totally new band mm-hmm. um and that was really really interesting because I was like you know you you never think about your brand when you're making music for the soul. But then I kind of realized that like, wow, these two other guys were like a huge part of what people expected when they would come to see geographers. So this is like a huge shock to them and thusly very upsetting. And I think I lost a lot of fans because I didn't shepherd them through that process of like, it's okay. It's still me. (laughs) You know, like I was still writing the songs. Uh, i didn't fire them you know there's no bad blood (laughs) but it's like you know support them in their journey because they have a different one going on now and please support me in my continued one so i didn't do any of that because i was just so naive to even that concept um
0: it's so fucking weird man like i've I've never even really like thought about that but there have been bands that i've seen you know over the years and you get really used to the lineup even though you maybe understand that one there's one main songwriter and they're the voice of the thing but then you show up to that show and you're like i don't really know if i like the look of this new bass player This kind of this whole band feels different now
1: (laughs) yeah yeah you're like i don't like this bass player (laughs) i now don't like these songs it's it's a weird thing where, like, your dad shaved his mustache for the first time and you're five years old and you <laughs> burst so out good. in tears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, combine that thought with a guy like David Bowie, he made a brand out of always being different, ingenious man that he was. Mm. You know, it's like yeah. at the height of his fame, he fired his band, his hit band. You know, like he he was not famous before before that. He was just like toiling away, finally achieved the recognition he had craved and deserved and was so courageous and was just like, that's over. Aladdin's sane. You know, it's just like, yeah. And I was just so, I think I came from a place of such insecurity that I was just like desperately trying to hang on to what like I had built with those guys, with Geographer. Mm -hmm. And I was just... There was like a desperation, I think, you could feel from me, which is always a death knell for any artist, you know? Um, And, you know, Alone Time was me kind of trying to get past that desperation and to get back to being sky's the limit kind of guy, you know, where I was just like, all right, I'm alone now, (laughs) you know? And I do spend all my time alone just working on this music, just like I always have. Except now, once it's done, I'm also alone in the studio, you know, because I would I would always record most of the music in my room and then bring it to the guys. And then we would sort of like flesh them out as a band, be able to play the songs live, try them out on stage, maybe even, and then record in this like fit of lightning speed, paint by numbers, just recreate the demos, but with higher quality recording but then I was like, okay, I'm going to get serious about my signal chain, you know? I'm like, I have to maybe spend some money on some gear so I can record here, you know, like final stuff. So then I did that, and then I I was just going to a studio and just, for the first time ever, with songs that weren't done. Which actually, for me, in that at that time, was a terrible mistake. Because I just, like... I made so many songs that just were not ready for prime time, but I forced them on. You know, I forced them onto the stage. Like, go, honey, go, sing. You know, and then they're just like, um. You know, and they had all this potential, but they, but that, and that's why I released a huge B sides to that to that EP because eventually I did finish those songs to a place that I liked. But I was like, you know, they're from the past, so I'm not gonna make a big deal out of them. I'm not gonna put them on a new record. But I think they're really cool and I think people would really like them. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if I, it's tough to say if I had it to do all over again, but yeah, because it's not possible. Like you, you don't have it to do all over again and you'd still be surrounded by the same people giving you the same advice, you know, and I was getting some pretty weird advice at the time of like, you know, like you're going to, you're going to, we're definitely going to sign you to like a major label and this and that. And like, I was like, okay, so yeah, why not? Like I can be like why not? Why can't I be a major label artist? I'm like I can write, I can play, I can sing. Sure, I'm like violently insecure, but we'll make it work. You know, I it's
2: just like so <laughs>
1: on my on my personal journey as as an artist recovering basically from the third major loss in in his in his life which was that first band you know it was like we, obviously it was like really we went through a lot of really difficult times just learning how to be a band but but that was so much of my identity you know it was just like those two dudes on stage with me and just like with me in the van and it was really interesting to begin to conceive of myself as someone who might indeed be powerful enough on their own, you know? Um, and you're never alone in music, obviously. You've got producers, you've got your, your bandmates, and those are your friends and your family and your companions and, and, and your musical companions as well. But to think of myself as like the only one that is really behind all these things, like it, can I shoulder that weight? And it was hard at first, you know, and I think it wasn't until the next EP New Jersey, which to me is not a return to form, but a return to an ethos of, of writing where I'm like, okay, so my pop experiment failed where I went full pop, you know, and I learned a lot and it was really cool. I have a lot more tricks up my sleeve now, right? But I no longer want that. I no longer even want to be a radio band where it's like, because I had met a few people who were radio bands. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they would describe things to me and I'm like, God, you know, honestly, like, I don't know how I would handle that. Like, cause there, it's like at a certain point, I think you have to accept not only what you're capable of, but what you're built for, mm. what you're meant for, you know, it's like, sure. You may be able to do this thing, But will you be in one piece by the end of it? You know, will you be, is that what people need you for? And it's like, who knows? Who knows? But for me in that moment, because I had done a huge shift. I was like, I was like, I'm changing everything. I'm moving to Los Angeles. I'm truly going off on my own now. You know, I'm leaving my beloved San Francisco, which is a huge part of my professional and personal identity. You know, all those people. It's basically like San Francisco is the kind of town for me where, you know, I would walk up to a door person and they'd be like, hi, Mike. No, no, come on in. You know, it was amazing. Yeah. And I just felt so loved in that city and cared for by all these tastemakers and, and gatekeepers. They were just sort of like, Mike, yes, you please. And it just felt so amazing. And to leave that it was really hard. You know, and, and to go to like a a faceless, terrifying city <laughs> yeah. like Los
0: Angeles. You yeah, know? you had to go do some shit that you were scared of again.
1: Exactly. Oh, my God, exactly. And then my life picked up again because I was in a real rut, like all across the board. I was pretty miserable. Like I was just like I had moved into uh, or I had my girlfriend at the time had moved into my apartment So my roommates left, and then we just lived there together, and then we broke up. So then I was just like, well, rent control in San Francisco is a real thing. This is still the cheapest apartment I could possibly get, and it's nice, so I'm going to stay. And it was nice, but you could hear everything that the neighbors were doing, and they could hear everything that I was doing, and it Mm. was so limiting as far as like okay i want to sing right now but i can't because i'll get an angry email from my mean downstairs neighbor
0: they're like leaking your songs on the internet they're just bootleg recordings through the through the walls making geographer demos one crazy
1: thing is a a (laughs) fan moved below me and that was really intense like they were like
3: yeah
1: uh you know when we first met in the laundry room they were just like uh oh 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 are you my? And then, like, next thing I know, they're bringing me brownies up the back door, oh, and I'm sure. just like, "How's this gonna go down?" And they actually turned out to be like incredibly nice, but it was, it was just all this self consciousness there, you know. And like, I, I, I was not soaring. I was really like, I was trying to hang on to stuff more than soaring, you know. Yeah. Um, I was like trying to hang on to the success that I that was so hard to get, rather than you know reach for the success that I might feel in the future but so i moved down here to la started writing songs with a lot of other people not always for me and that was really um instrumental in in my development of like what can i do versus what do i want to do you know so it's like i still love like i have some friends who are really in the like write for tv game and they'll loop me in you know because i can produce and we'll write a song together and then they'll be like, all right, now we want it to be like a peppy disco type song. And I'm like, cool, could try that, you know, and I like and I try it and I do my best and it takes me longer than other people. But I get there eventually and I learn so much along the way. And it's really fun. And and it's also nice to have something that you dread working on because you're like, oh, God, I have to mix that song, disco song. But you, it's like <laughs> gives you structure, you know. Right. But then I'm like, I'm not going to release this song as mine. But every now and then you, you make a song like uh, When Will I Belong it was a song that I wrote, you know, by myself for a TV show. And I ended up just being like, this is this is like kind of always wanted to write a song like this. And I'm like, and this feels like me. You know, it feels like something not only that, but it feels like something that I want to be me, even if it is me or not, you know, because it hurts to feel like you are beholden to a stranger's conception of of who you can be, you know, that's painful to you. Um, and, and to, to see that, you know, cause that was also a big song for me and kind of like the first big song I had in a while. Um, and that was really meaningful to me to see that I could stretch myself to a place where I was uncomfortable because I was like embarrassed about that song. I was like, it's too pretty. It's too, like, it's too long, you know? And then I was just like, to see it really, really well received by people who'd never heard of Geographer and people who loved Geographer. I was like, okay, I think we got this.
2: Oh, this fire I burn. It takes me inside and show
0: Up for the thing being being open to you know yeah. push yourself in that direction and be uncomfortable i guess even in like you were saying just being yeah. kind of scared to put that out and not know if like yes people are going to identify with it or not or you know just yeah. even like your own self-doubt maybe locked in to the song and yeah man i yeah. can't imagine like those expectations that people place upon you as an artist especially when they follow your career for a long time and i think over time i've like really tried to just not expect anything from my favorite artists Mm -hmm. as far as their next releases and good for you it makes it a little better though i don't know man it like it feels like it makes makes it better that way and like i just don't really understand like oh like when people get upset about um you know them taking a turn in their sound or I don't yeah. know. All of my favorite bands up to this point or favorite artists are um the ones where I show up to the live show and I don't care what's in the set. Like I'm just excited mm. about what they want to play because I like it all. Yep. And it does, you know. Yeah,
1: just watching them do their thing. Yeah. Yeah, cuz sure. they're not they're not like when when you start a band, you you just you follow your heart and you write those songs. It's very rare that someone will be like, guys, we're going to be a guitar band that uses only eighth notes, okay? Our melodies are going to be very monotone. You know, it's like very rare that that happens. It's just like whatever inspires you at the moment and then, you know, and then you become Joy Division or Interpol, yeah, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, but then imagine if they never blossomed into New Order, you know, mm. can you imagine Joy Division going like, up, down, turn around, please don't let me hit the ground. <laughs> you know, it's just like and the world would be worse for it. You know, at the same time, I do experience the flip side, which I think is why I feel it so intensely from the other way is because it's like, you know, there are bands that I really fell in love with, like uh, Animal Collective, for instance, like everything up to Meriwether Post Pavilion is just unbelievable to me and then after that i i truly just stopped enjoying listening to their music that doesn't make me hate them you know because i'm like thank you for the many great albums you know um i mean even radiohead is honestly that way for me now i i don't i don't really connect to their to their recent albums and you know it's like um i'd say in rainbows is the last one that i'm like you know, head over heels for, even though there's a song or two on every record where I'm like, wow. But it's no longer the days of putting on a radio head record and just feeling like you were entering the sublime from start to finish. But so I realize that it happens and I realize that it's a bummer. But I honestly think it's it's better for your career. Even if you're worried about your career, like radioheads Past songs are still everybody's favorites, but the fact that they're still trailblazing, still trying to find new sounds, they're not complacent, I mean, that's their brand. You know what I mean? Their brand is not, like, uh, anything to do with Kid A or OK Computer. It just has to do with their ethic of what they want to do with sounds. And I think if you can make that your brand, man, you can do anything
0: so previous to this new record, you put out the New Jersey EP that we uh mm-hmm. we spoke about a bit. I was uh I was curious what it was, you know, like sharing your experiences through that record and and did you feel like in some ways that you had been writing that record since the day that you left New Jersey and Ooh. did it just kind of take you a while to process the way to deliver it?
1: Absolutely. Wow, that that's the first time I've ever thought about that, but it feels really right, especially "Summer of My Discontentment," like the the Mm. main single off of it, because that's just about you know my my core group of high school friends where we were like you know you're like a brother to me, like I'll always be there, you know, and on the verge of going to college and starting our lives, and now like we don't even talk anymore, and it's like what is up with that, like you know, (laughs) like what is that? What happens in somebody's heart where they they think that something's going to last? But I think it's just... And, and it's interesting. We were just talking about your favorite artists changing. But it's like your favorite friends change. Yeah, <laughs> You man. know? Because they get filled with different inspirations and they're not always good. You know? It's like college is kind of a dangerous place for, like, a young man. And sometimes they can turn out a little weird when they're done, you know? Absolutely. And... Also, my obsession with looking outwards and, and and always being at the vanguard and demanding adventure, you know, that definitely... I, I'm largely responsible for not... Like, those guys hang out with each other. It's just like, I just don't hang out with them, you know? And I think I was really interested in finding the beauty in that moment and then also the beauty in that separation, <laughs> where it was like, how, how can we... How can we approach this event without sadness, really? You know, and then that's where the chorus, it's like, whatever happens on the way, you were a star in the summer of my discontentment. And that's kind of like a dig at myself of like, oh yeah, you were so sad. You know, it's just like <laughs> it was pretty awesome, bud. <laughs> you know. And it's just after going through like real sadness, it's it's just so interesting to think back at how important feeling sad was to me you know in those days and in creating who i was and that song was also born in transition because i was staying at a friend of mine's house um in like the hills in los angeles because uh, he was gone and i was like house sitting his plants and then eventually he came back he let me stay in his house for like a month while i looked for an apartment in the literally the most intense you know, modern moment of my life where I was just like, what will happen to me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, he had a piano. So when I was alone, I was just like jamming on the piano. And I was like, what if I made, what if I made a song like The Streets Have No Name, but with a piano, mm. you know? And like just a piano, nothing crazy, no special like, because I feel like I have a tendency to really layer melody upon melody, you know? And like, that's how I, that's how i build out the chord structure of a song as i like i said i try never to play chords and I, and i so it kind of gets filled up pretty quickly and i had gotten a lot of feedback of like mike you need to simplify your arrangements from people that i respected and i was like all right i'm going to try that just once i don't like listening to people's advice but i will try that here and and that went great and then eventually i i did layer that same riff with a couple synths to make like the bigger and smaller parts. And it was just a great experience to just see that song come to be. And also to say, I don't know what this is. I don't know where this song belongs, but it like feels really powerful to me. And I have to guess that, that it's also gonna feel that way to some other people.
0: The tunes is one of my favorites of yours, and I just think that they're these cool kind of diary entries. And yeah. uh being new to the music, I, I thought that that was like a cool way to get some insight into you know who you might be in some ways. And
1: yeah, oh yeah, I mean that's by far the most personal record I've ever made. And and maybe it was an attempt to just say to put it all out there to be like there's nothing left to hide. So. You don't have to hide. And now you can, you know, now let's see who you are. All
0: right, Mike, we made it to the, the final stage, you know, to, to talk about this record that is uh, now available when this comes out. And that's down and out in the garden oh, of earthly delights. And I've, uh, I've yes. had the, the kind opportunity to get to to geek out on this record a little bit early and uh been digging what i've been hearing but i'm curious uh you've been making records a long time and we've Mm kind of talked about how that has evolved and i was just curious if there was any different approach in in putting this collection of tunes together that maybe hadn't been present in the past or just anything of note in that realm
1: well i mean there's a lot of things that are different about this one i would say top to bottom as far as like you know, the title to start. It's like I would never have allowed myself to make a title that potentially ludicrous, you know, but I was just feeling frisky and I was like, this is what I want it to be called. This is what it should be called, so I'm just going to do it, you know? It's just like, and I've always written so many songs for every record and uh, just picked through a few of them, you know? And in looking back, I've often felt that i made a mistake sometimes like i'm like ah why didn't i put that one on there you know because it's like it's way better than this one you know it is it so i basically in an effort to avoid that i i just put 20 songs on it which is also totally insane mm-hmm. because <laughs> yeah. it's a singles it is a singles market out there you know it's like but i actually ended up being able to utilize that when i signed To network, which was like obviously a humongous experience, like in the geographer journey, you know, it's kind of like the last, the last thing that needed to fall into place for me to really, to really become, you know, who I think I am meant to be as an artist is to have the support of, of an indie with like, of a label with like an indie ethos, you know, but like a sort of like major label hopes in a way, you know, it's like, not limiting great creative partners. And that actually really meant, means a lot, you know? Cause I've never had that. I've never had like creative partners from my label. Very strange. And then I had, I got a new manager, just a great manager who, and I know it feels like I'm just like hyping people up, but it, it, it just like, it all went into the music. Just like being surrounded by support and like really smart people working the other stuff it just made me relax a little bit, where I was like, okay, yes, I will write with other people. If I don't like it, I won't put it on the record. Who cares? you know? But maybe there's a chance that I'll make something new and interesting. So you know, most of the songs I wrote myself, the usual way. But for the first time, I basically admitted defeat with a few songs, where I was like, I cannot finish these songs. The verse is so cool. I love the arrangement, but it has no chorus. I'm screwed. Because normally I would just bang my head against the wall over and over again. Just being like, no, Mike, you must be the one to do it. You are the artist. You will do it. Um, But in this one, in this specific instance, I, I, I just told my manager the problem I was having. And he linked me up with an artist named Evelyn. She came to my house and... In one day, we fixed three songs, two of which became singles. And they're like, it was such an amazing experience because being down here, that's why I moved to L.A. was to be surrounded by capable collaborators, to be surrounded by people who were, you know, like doing doing things that maybe weren't in line with me, but that were also wonderful. You know, because mm. in San Francisco, such a small music scene, even though it is a music scene, it, it's just very small. And there's not a ton of collaboration, at least when I was there. Um, but L.A. is like all about it. You know, it's yeah. like easy to get a little swept up in it, you know?
0: Yeah. It's got to relieve some of that pressure to to get yes. somebody else in the room with you.
1: Yeah. And it, it's not like I didn't have the experience because I made the record before I signed um to network so like all these things happened beforehand but it was like sort of in in the works as the record was about to be uh well because i didn't release it because of covid and then it gave the record a whole second life where then it's like oh we can actually breathe life into these songs you know and sit with them and find out what they are what they mean and i've done all these different arrangements of them as well but it just like i think working with those other people and working with totally new musicians as well except for my drummer who has he's been with me since uh ghost modern tour um you know i i i went up to san francisco to record a lot of the songs with my same old favorite people you know because like i just i just love the way they do things but i i didn't do the record with one person which i've always done in the past it's always Mm -hmm. been you are the person who does this record and to me that's That's just as limiting as like, you are the person who writes this song, whether you can or not, whether you're the right person for the job or not, you know, and it's like, you know, uh, nothing against uh, anybody, you know, it's like everybody has their specialty and it was great to just give the songs to the person who I knew would knock it out of the park Right. And then the other songs who I'm like, ooh, but I'm also really excited to work with this person. And I was just so excited. You know, it's like, oh, God, I bet this guy will do something really cool and weird on this song. And then, you know, a drummer who's like, OK, I like your part. But do you mind if I just do a pass like with my part? And I'm like very exacting. I almost never I almost never waver from my part. But there were a few times where it was just like, oh, you just saved the song. Thank you. You know, and it's like learning when to when to step back and when to insist has been basically the most difficult creative challenge. And I feel like I found a great balance on this record. Like, I'm very proud of the times that I stepped back, you Mm. know, and and the times that I insisted, because it's like some of the songs I was like, okay, that 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 would have been a mistake. And and I'm glad that I did, you know, but I was just working with people who were. It was so unemotionally charged, like nobody was getting in any fights. <laughs> you know, it's like we're all just here to make some great music. And and I think uh, over the years of being in in a band and like having many different band members in that band, I've, I've gotten a lot better at navigating that tense environment where everybody loves what they've done, but I have to pick what makes the cut, you know, and I think I've gotten a lot better at just just making the right choice, basically, uh, about being like, well, I really respect your opinion. And I and I do think that it's a good idea, but it's not the one I'm going to go with. And, I, you know, that doesn't mean I, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything more than that. You
0: yeah. Know? And hopefully people respect that you are rooted and grounded in what your vision is, too. And realize, yes. that, you know, you're the one that is attaching your name.
1: Exactly, but not so much so that I block out great ideas, which I yeah. think I have done a fair amount of in the past. So, yeah, I mean, this record, like when it came time to, to to write down the credits on the vinyl, it was like, it took me a week just to track down. I'm like, did you do vocals on uh, someone? You know, it's just like, yeah. no, I don't think so. I'm like, oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> so it's just... Yeah, I kind of like went all over recording it and, and, you know, inside and out.
0: Yeah, that's the the Steely Dan Asia effect where you have like 25 different players on the record. But I don't know. That seemed to be the one for them that like when they broke out of the constraints of having dedicated members for everything and had six different drummers. Yeah, they like that was the thing that they finally made the record that they knew they could make they just needed the so right personnel cool. and to not be so locked into this guy plays on this song and you know yeah and and they were really yeah. able to just like bring the players in that they knew would do a great job and let them do right. their thing and and they didn't have to yeah. worry about uh you know different band members being upset about playing parts or whatever no
1: yeah so. and it's interesting though because some people don't have that luxury like Bruce Springsteen, when he put out Tunnel of Love and then toured without the E Street Band, it was like a flop. It was a huge... Right. Like, right after right. his meteoric, you know, his zenith of popularity, he, he like, needs the E Street Band for some reason. And also, like, I can't picture Bono making a record without you 2 yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I've never... I guess in the beginning, actually, I did want to be like that. I wanted to be... This is a band that if you separated, it would it, it would not be as good. You know, like, I wanted, sure. basically, I wanted to be Radiohead. And, yes, Tom York can make a great solo album, but it'll never compare to the combination of those minds. But that just is not how it shook out for me. I just never had, like, that was one dream that I didn't achieve, you know, because that that one's really by chance. If you look at all those bands that I just named... They pretty much met as kids, you know, and then and and some of them are related. <laughs>
0: right, and then you have to navigate all those things that you were talking about of just like friendships changing. Is like people are oh obviously going to change over a forty-year-year year course. So it oh is really God, fucking impressive when a group does yeah. stay
1: together. Yeah, it almost feels like most bands could be the greatest band in the world if they could just stay together yeah <laughs> you know it's like maybe maybe U two is not that much better than oh, uh, i don't know who's a band that broke up then <laughs> i was gonna i was the police Beatles. i don't know you know
0: the police didn't hang for very long yeah then the police right like, exactly uh, and they took over like from sting the police. was super yeah. fun to be a, in a band with all the time so
1: yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so it's i feel like it's I'm at a place where it's not like the sky's the limit because it's not like I'm going to make a world record or something like I'm I'm still trying to do like something specific, you know, but the tools that I have now available to me, I feel like if I ever hit a wall, I feel like people have got my back. And that's a great it's a Mm. great feeling like I can call up somebody and be like, save me, you know,
0: slave to the rhythm is the opening track on the record and you waste yes. little time getting right into the lyrics like you have something to say and you're not going to yeah. you know waste any time putting the words out i was wondering if that urgency was conscious at all or if that just kind of happened
1: well i wonder i think it definitely was not conscious i think i just like cuz i write very unconsciously and that one came came about like rather unconsciously, even for me, where I I was messing around with, like, that uh, drum pattern on my little Yamaha toy keyboard, and, you know, normally I'd be like, okay, this is a good reference, and when there were people in my band, they would be like, well, you know, I'll play that on the drums, right? But I was like, no, no, not today. I'm gonna put that in the song, and then I'm gonna augment it with, like, a, you know, a cool drum machine, But I was so happy with that decision because it's, I've always wanted to do it. And it's like, in many ways, it's kind of like a, I like doing things that are slightly wrong or slightly dumb and then making them work and, you know, putting like a bad sounding toy keyboard drum machine on your song in 2020, you know, it's like kind of feels silly because there's so many samples out there. But that was what it was you know that was the song it like felt a little bit too indie to me and then i was like you know what this whole song's gonna be indie and i was just like (laughs) and i'm gonna shred on the guitar and then i'm gonna just chop my vocals up for the majority of the song there's gonna be no second verse (laughs) (laughs) so that song was super liberating for me because i was like i love this like i love playing this i loved recording this and like then when I did take it to a studio to do the finishing touches, I worked with someone I'd always wanted to work with, James Riotto in San Francisco. He had engineered a bunch of my records, but he had never been the only person engineering them. And then the stuff he did to it was just magical. Like, and and it's all imperceptible. It all happens like under the surface, but you can feel it. And it, it, it's just, it was such a wonderful experience. And that was the first one I did. Um, and then that, I mean, that just gave me kind of like the juice to, to go forth and finish the record. You're
2: a slave to the rhythm, slave to the light, and you know you gotta get it to them every night.
0: on that track and just the the heavy guitar driven stuff like i was talking about earlier that that kind of is that full circle stuff i was talking about is right you know maybe some of that yeah. that heavier stuff coming back in and right but still yeah still maintaining all the the cool synthy shit as well that's right know?
1: and i cannot wait to play that song live like can you imagine ripping into the guitar oh I've <laughs> been looking forward to that for years
0: <laughs> Yeah were all these songs Written around the same time Or have some of the ideas been around for a while
1: so, Well that's a great question Because some of them have been around for a while Most of them were written uh, I guess it was 2019 Like that spring and summer um, I think right I mean my dates are all off Because of that year we lost yeah. But that sounds about right um but some of the like never let you down has been around for i think since 2015 even like i tried to been trying to get that on a record since 2015 and that was one of the ones that evelyn saved and uh it wasn't that it wasn't a huge change but it was like enormous in in the difference you know it's like you know it's kind of like when you're just, you know what those uh have you ever seen a video of like limestone quarries where people are just like hitting the rocks over and over again they have a seam they're just trying to break a big chunk off of it and you hit it nothing changes, nothing changes nothing changes and it's like they know and then you hit one and then the whole seam goes right up this enormous rock and it breaks off that was like that song and suddenly i had i had the chorus i'd always wanted but so that that one's been around for a long time And it was interesting to, you know, approach that from that perspective. I really didn't change much. I really, like from the arrangement, I was really just like, yeah, I love this. I love this synth tone. I love, I love this vocal delivery. That was the hardest part was trying to recapture the delivery that happened spontaneously when I was in my bedroom in San Francisco, you know, just basically singing about a real problem I was having, you know, problem I was not having anymore you know uh and uh yeah so it was it was interesting to try it was very challenging to tap into that but yeah i'm still happy with the way the vocal came out but that was one of those instances where it's like oh if only i had had like studio quality vocal gear back then then i could have just used the awesome take you know
0: yeah is that something that happens that's rough at times to when you uh have that initial idea and trying to recreate it in the studio later just to to tap into that raw emotion that was driving it before and the frustrations that can go along with that.
1: It can be, it can be very hard, but I think, I think when it's easy is when you've made a good arrangement because then that arrangement inspires you to get back in that place, especially because that's how I write a lot. I, I generally make, a lot of the music before i dip into the lyrics almost i almost always make the whole song before i figure out what it's about you know there'll be a, a word or two here that i've just like sung in sort of like a trance state um and i'm like oh interesting that came from beyond yeah. uh, we'll latch on to that but yeah i mean sometimes sometimes you don't even have to get yourself back there it's just like a timbral quality to your voice and you're like oh perfect and then sometimes you're just like i am just doing this wrong like it's like what happens most with me is my first vocal take when i'm redoing a demo will be way too energetic like way too pumped up way too like too much emotion you know like i'll be like oh yeah yeah and i'll be like that was it that was an amazing take can we move on and then the engineer will be like i think let's get a couple more you know they're always so good at (laughs) at that you know like not not making you discouraged but 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 getting the right take out of you and i'm it's pretty interesting for me to witness that happening over and over where it's like you can tell i'm a little too geared up i'm a little like too focused on recapturing and not focused enough on just like i think it's more about kind of like meditation where you just like let everything go and then let the song come out of you again you know and that that's probably the best chance you have of of recreating the emotion that you love yeah
0: hollow is one of my favorite tracks on the record and uh, nice. there's some really cool moments with those big gated kind of Phil Collins drums on them that I yes. just yes. in love with Phil's my favorite <laughs> do, 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 do. that's my guy
1: that's another one where I went for it I was like I'm not so sure you're allowed to do this anymore But I love
2: it. Are you into the mall? Are you thinking of gold so soon? I knew that the second.
0: The, the video for that one, is that something? Do you get pretty involved in creative direction for the videos? Because you've got quite a few, and it seems like, I don't know, it, lo- it looks like it's a part of the, you know, a complete package. Like, it, it's, it would yes. be hard for well, me to uh, think that you have no, no play in, like, putting out your ideas for these things.
1: Yeah, I mean, the videos have always been extremely important to me, but it's been a long journey to getting comfortable um sort of like being involved in the videos and that culminated with this record this record is the first time i've really really made like been a big part of the videos that one i was not a big part of i was just like you know the um video person at network found uh found me like a bunch of people to to check out and like you know to try to see who i wanted to work with and then i found the Valdez in that pile and I was just like wow I love every single image every single image that I've seen (laughs) you know which is a very rare experience for me Um, because what's happened to me most in, in over time is someone will pitch me like this really awesome idea and it will be a great idea but it involves a budget that is just so much bigger than the one that I eventually give them so then rather than pairing the idea to the budget, they just they just do their best, you know? And then it all invariably comes out not looking like I thought it would. And I'm often like, well, sorry, often very discouraged and like, you know, because I'm like, oh man, it was so amazing in my head. So this time around, I was just very determined <clears throat> to not receive such a video. So in talking about the concept with them, uh, I was just like very conscious of can we pull this off with what what we've got which and this was in full lockdown time so you know we had to be outside we had to be very far away from each other and it had to be just them you know just the two of them with one camera you know so that's we came up with the with well they mostly came up with that idea and yeah it was easy very easy to shoot you know and i just like did my best dancing that i could and (laughs) But then the next two videos, I was much more involved in because my girlfriend creative directed those two. So, I mean, to me, it doesn't get much better than that. You know, it's like there's no one on earth who knows me better creatively. She, She's like often in the same room as me when I'm writing some of these songs, you know, and like definitely hears all the live streams and all the practicing and everything and then knows me knows me as an artist knows my frustrations um and she's incredibly talented and knows really talented people and so yeah alibi was very much her and the director katya um and and i was just sort of like along for the ride but then because we had like a slightly bigger budget for that one and then Then the last one, Peripheral Vision, was really Monica and I sort of like bringing Monica's idea to the screen. Like where I was, I was kind of like acting like a line producer for that. You know, it's like I was like, okay, I I like source the space. I'm going to like, find. Okay, we want it to be a psych wall that like disappearing white space. Great. You know, find find the the DP and the director that we can get and then like working with her on wardrobe like we had this whole day where i tried on every single outfit in the house you know and then we like settled upon one and then she was in it too so she's like <laughs> she's she's dancing and lip syncing oh, and i'm yeah. like holding cue cards you know cuz she doesn't know the words to the song and it was just like it was so fun like i it was really stressful you know cuz she's on other jobs too you know like doing you know her job so i had to like pull a lot of the the like uh boots on the ground stuff for that one um but i love doing that stuff and it was just so gratifying after it was over just to see like oh my god this looks like this looks better than it did in my head i can't believe it because you know the director patrick mattis um and the dp christian klein they just like brought amazing gear to to the shoot and amazing ideas so it was like you know just it was a, a really really meaningful moment in the video realm, which is something that I've always felt really insecure about in my videos. Like I felt like I never I never delivered a video that was the one I intended to deliver, mm. you know, whether I was hands on or utterly hands off. Like it it never because I'm so exacting with the music that I put out, it's always been very upsetting to me to not be able to bring that to bear on the visual as well, which is something this that's the first time I've ever been able to do it. It was a great feeling.
0: Yeah, and then the added special layer that you get to share that with your significant other, this you know, like yeah. you were saying, just this person that there's knows you better. so well and knows how yeah. much energy you put into this thing and and mm-hmm. the vision that you're trying to accomplish with it—it's very cool.
1: And there's no small feat of like helping me become comfortable on camera. Like I basically owe that totally to her because she's a photographer as well, and. That's basically been the main impediment to my music v- videos being great. It's like I just couldn't handle the performance, you know, so they had to work around that. But then getting, you know, her having her there who I feel totally safe with, I feel like she lifts me up higher than I than I usually go by myself. I was able to deliver the performance that I wanted to, and that also was a great feeling. Yeah, man.
0: Well, fuck, Mike. We talked for almost two hours here. We got we got oh, deep goodness. into it. We went for it.
1: <laughs> wow. Love uh, it. I was like, oh, I wonder why my throat's so dry. <laughs> man, this has
0: been super awesome, man. It's been great to get to chat with you and get to know you a bit and kind of you know, help fill in some of the blanks for me about just kind of going through the music and where it all derives from. And like I said, I think you're just a a killer songwriter man and i just always have so oh, much respect you. for people that have been able to figure out how to make it sustainable or just kind of keep keep doing the thing so i'm sure you're yep, uh yep i'm sure that's mostly sis- what it's about <laughs> i'm sure your sister and your pops are super stoked that you're oh, still doing you so the much. thing man and oh you're yay, so kind making some making some great music so I appreciate you giving me so much of your time, and I'm stoked for people to get to hear this down and out in the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is uh, available on all of the streaming services. And I will certainly put all of your links in the episode notes so people can uh, keep up with you, man.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, because I feel like I I filled in a couple of the blanks as well, <laughs> just for a oh, quick right. question. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> I was like, oh, I never thought about that before. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, nah, it's been great, man, just to go through all the tunes and, like I said, just kind of connect the dots and and figure out uh, just some of those constants like I was talking about and see see yeah, what shows cool. itself this nearly 15 years into putting records out oh. into the public is uh yeah. very fucking cool. So
1: That's amazing. <laughs> I want
0: to I want to play the episode out with Garden. That is uh one of my favorite jams on the nice. new Geographer album. Is there uh anything you want to share about this one to sail us out of this thing?
1: Oh, well this one is uh probably the most anti love song i've ever written even though it kind of seems like one but it's just like you know what it takes the idea of soulmates and shows you that it's actually the plot of a horror movie because if there's only one person that you belong to out of seven billion people the chances (laughs) that you're gonna find them is very small
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome dude Um, we we end every episode of the podcast with the guest saying the tagline for the show which is it's a program so if we could get the geographer (laughs) it's a program we can uh, properly end this thing it's a program he nailed it everybody that's (laughs)
1: that's <laughs> geographer
0: <take>. yeah <laughs> one take that's that's all that's necessary you don't have to go back and try to capture the vibe on that one. Oh, okay we'll, good <laughs> we'll go ahead and keep the first one nice <laughs> and, Your demo-itis. Uh, yeah, like I said all those links will be in the episode notes so you can keep up with all the geographer music and that's the jelly jams and we will catch you on the flip side Portland Los Angeles wherever you are listening from oh, big shout out to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Can't say thank you enough to DistroKid for their support of this thing. And make sure you go into the episode notes and find that DistroKid link to receive 30% off your first year of membership with DistroKid, making their already affordable prices, even cheaper for you. So make sure you take advantage of that. And the link is also in uh, the link in my Instagram bio on the link tree. So you can find it there as well. Big thanks to Distro Kid. Stay up, stay tuned.